Thank you for joining us. Remember, you can watch our services live and view our archive at StevensCreekChurch.com, the Stevens Creek app, or on our Roku channel. And if our ministries have touched your life, we'd love to hear about it. Send us an email to mystory at StevensCreekChurch.com. We hope today's message encourages and inspires you. Enjoy the message. Welcome, everybody. Good morning. You guys doing good? Yeah? How about you guys over at South and Grovetown? I miss you guys. Welcome. I'm excited to be with you guys. I'm normally over at Grovetown, but here I am today. And I don't know uh, if you guys are Star Wars fans. Is anybody a Star Wars fan in the house? Okay, there's more Star Wars fans than was at the 9 a.m. service because there was like one person that was like, ooh, ooh, ooh. You know, it's like, is anybody a Star Wars fan? Come on, show me. Okay, okay. Some of you are not. That's okay, you know. They might get into the mini-series that started happening. Some of you are annoyed by them. Some of you like them. Some of you don't know they exist. But uh, me and my son Hudson got into this one called The Mandalorian. Are there any fans? Okay, okay, there's some fans. Okay, good. Stay with me. Even if you're not a fan, because you saw the little green creature that came from this show, Baby Yoda, he took over the culture, right, and seemed like he was everywhere, Target, Walmart, and all the rest. And it was not a gremlin, if you thought it was a gremlin. They were not making a comeback. It was Baby Yoda from the show, The Mandalorian. So, so this, this show basically is this quest of one particular Mandalorian. They call him Mando. And they're from, he's from the planet of Mandalore. And, and there's all these other Mandalorians as well. And they're united around this code. It's a code of ethics. It's a set of values or ideals, you could say. And, and they, they basically, it basically shapes their thinking, their behavior, their life, their decisions, right? Their whole way of living. And ultimately, the, the, the Mandalorians, uh, they devote themselves to this particular way of living. And no matter how cult, countercultural it is or, or unpopular it is, you know, when they have a decision to make or when they're about to go into battle, you'll hear this phrase that captures what they're about. Some of you know this phrase. Okay, so one Mandalorian will say, anybody know it? Oh, you guys are good. You guys are good. This is the way. And then the other Mandalorian or group of Mandalorians, they say over there at South of Grovetown, what do they say? This is the way, right? Right back to them. And, And in other words, the Mandalorians are saying, this is what we devote ourselves to. We believe it's the best way to live. And no matter how unpopular or countercultural it is, they're saying this is how we do things. This is how we do things. And today what I want us to explore together is what it really means to follow in the way of Jesus, to follow in the way of Jesus. Because, because many people assume or think, maybe you do too, maybe I do too, we, we assume or think that Jesus came on the scene and invited people to believe Well, he didn't exactly focus on that with his first disciples. That wasn't his first invitation. Beliefs are important. We'll get to that in a moment. But when Jesus started into his ministry, he didn't simply invite people to believe. He invited people to follow. So in one case, Matthew chapter 4, we read this. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter and Andrew. So he sees Peter and Andrew. They're throwing a net into the water. They're, They're fishing. Like they fish for a living. So Jesus called out to them and he says, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. And then verse 20, they left their nets at once and they followed him. 
Then a little farther up the shore, he saw two brothers, James and John. They were sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee. They were repairing their nets, and he called to them. He said the same. He said, come follow me again. They immediately followed him, and it says they left the boat and their father behind, and off they went with Jesus. And then verse 23, Jesus traveled through the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. So it is possible to be a Christian and not follow in the way of Jesus. Jesus didn't start by saying, believe in me. He, said, he started by saying, follow me. In other words, what I'm saying is you can be a believer. You can believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that he was raised through life so that you can be forgiven, your eternity can be secure, you can be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you can believe in the Christian doctrine, yet still fail to truly follow Jesus. So I was a freshman in college, I uh, went to the University of South Carolina, and I was there, no booze please, I was there, they did lose, we had enough of rough time last night if you're a football fan, um, but, but I went to South Carolina, and during my first semester, uh, several things led up to this moment, but, uh, but I decided in that season of my life that I was going to devote myself to Christ. No turning back, I'm all in. I had, I had been raised in the church and, you know, wrestled with different beliefs and sort of was wrestling with what I believe, and in that season, I said, yes, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, full devotion. And I remember telling my friend the next day after I made that decision, and I told my friend who was a follower of Jesus as well, and he said several things. He was happy for me, encouraged me, but he said one thing I'll never forget. And he said this. He said, don't just be a Christian, become a disciple. Don't just be a Christian, become a disciple. And in essence, he was saying, don't just be the person that, that believes in Jesus, be the person that follows Jesus where your entire life changes. Because that's really what Jesus invited his disciples, those first disciples, to be about. That they would follow his teachings and reorder their life around those teachings. That they would follow the person of Jesus and align their lives with his mission. And my friend, in essence, was saying, allow God to transform your life. And it's always been interesting to me in the Bible, you may or may not know this, may surprise you, but the word Christian only gets used three times. A couple times in Acts and then once later in the New Testament. And it's never used by a Jesus follower to describe themselves or to describe another Jesus follower. And it's not even used by Jesus. It's used by people outside the Jesus community. And there's this, this prominent group of, of people, followers of Jesus, that, that emerge on the scene. And they use it kind of as a label. It's in a not-so-positive way. It's sort of like those Christians, right? These people have emerged. They've been kind of uh, become a disturbance or whatever. And so they say, those Christians... And then you look at the New Testament, and there is a different word that does get used. In fact, it gets used 269 times, not that I was counting, <laughs> but it's the word disciple. And, and the word disciple can be translated in different ways. It can be student, it can be learner. Maybe the best translation is the idea of an apprentice. And, and then we look at the book of Acts, the, the history and the explosion of the early church, and, and we have this other description that describes the tribe of disciples, that, that group of people that's bubbling up in the first century. And they refer to themselves as followers of the way. Followers of the way. So the Greek word, the way, it gets translated, and it literally means 
a teaching in the most comprehensive way. A teaching in the most comprehensive way. Or, or another definition, you could translate it like this, a whole way of life. A whole way of life. So for those early disciples, following Jesus was not just about having a belief that would get you into heaven. It was a way of living that impacted every aspect of their life on earth. To follow in the way of Jesus was was to follow a way of doing things, a way of being, a way of serving, a way of loving, a way of becoming. It It would involve rearranging your life around the values of the kingdom of God. Rearranging your life in in a way and living in a way that that begins to resemble the life of Christ himself. So to follow in the way means that men, as well as women, would choose to live a countercultural way of living. Have have countercultural behaviors and thinking patterns and decision making. And it began to shape who they were and how they lived. You could say it like this, they weren't just believers, they were followers. They weren't just Christians, they were disciples. But somewhere along the way, we've mistakenly made it acceptable in the church to be a Christian, but not be a disciple. And it's never been what Jesus intended. And to be clear, following Jesus, it isn't less than belief, but it is certainly more than belief. And If we're going to take the teachings and the the mission of Jesus seriously, it must become more than belief alone. So when Jesus walked on this earth, he had 13 different occasions that we know of, and there was probably more, but 13 times he said, follow me to another person. And I know the the word follow is, is kind of at this stage embedded into our culture I mean, we can follow a celebrity in social media. We can follow a famous athlete or a team. We, we, we can, you know, follow our interests. We can follow a friend or unfollow a friend. Uh, you know, and, and so we get used to that term. But the term follow in our day is really kind of a fluid term. But when Jesus said follow me, he didn't use it in that way at all. It was not fluid, it was not fluid at all. It was tangible. It was concrete. It was, it was really all-consuming. And so one of the, the best ways to understand really what Jesus meant when he said follow, or, or you could say it like this, when really Jesus called people to be disciples, is if we go back to the first century, which I want to take us back there today. And I want to look at where and when the idea of what it means to be a disciple, or you could say discipleship, originated, or you could say was invented. It was in a place called Galilee. And within Galilee, there was a town called Capernaum, and Capernaum had about 2,000 people. It was a small little town, and it wasn't really that sophisticated or cultured. It wasn't really a heavily educated place, but the people in that town had remarkable passion. It was passion for spiritual things, things like faith and and the scriptures and and the coming of Messiah, and so they would talk and debate and, and study these kind of things. It's also the place where rabbis would go to find disciples, and disciples would go and find rabbis. So we find in Matthew's gospel something that's interesting, because Jesus, it says, selected this town as the center of his public ministry, Galilee. So he went there after he left Nazareth, it says in Matthew chapter 4. And so he steps into this culture And he's a rabbi. I mean, we know Jesus as the risen Christ and have other names and and things and ways that we describe Jesus. But but he was a rabbi. He was a teacher. 
which also meant he wanted students or apprentices, you could say. And it's interesting that he intentionally chose the Galilean model of discipleship. He went there and he started looking for students or disciples. Okay, so he embeds himself into this culture. Now, the Hebrew was the language that the the Old Testament was written. So in the Hebrew, the word for disciple is Talmud. Let's everybody say that together. Everybody say, you ready? Set, go. Talmud. All right, now do it again. Talmud. Now you can't spell it, can you? Maybe you can. That's not too hard. But Talmud, right? So it's this idea, and, and this is what it means. It's the idea of a disciple, but it means this literally. One who seeks to become like his master. One who seeks to become like his master. So the Talmud Desire, and this is generally speaking in that culture, the Talmud desire to learn not only the teachings of his rabbi, but to imitate the practical ideas and details of their life. They wanted to align their life with that rabbi's teachings and that rabbi's mission. And there was this strong emphasis on relationship and connection from the rabbi and the Talmud. They, they wanted the relationship strong. So, the thought would be if somebody wants to become like someone else, close relationship is essential. Close relationship had to be there. So in the first century, this Talmud was consumed with passion. They were like obsessed, in a sense, to emulate their rabbi in every way possible. So from the moment the day began to the moment they went to sleep, it was like they were locked into learning how to live and how to be just like that rabbi in all aspects of life. So, so they, would, they, would, they would change. It wasn't that their personality had to change. That really wasn't the goal. But their focus, their mindset, their values, the, the priorities and their perspectives in their life, their passions, their pursuits would begin to change because they would see what the rabbi was doing. They would see how he was living. It was all in the context of relationship. And it changed things like how the Talmud treated someone else because they would see how their rabbi treated someone else or, or how they made decisions. They would change how they went about making decisions. So that Talmud would want to know, in other words, like, okay, I have to make a decision. How might my rabbi make this decision if he was in my place? Or maybe there was a difficult person, let's just say, in, in that Talmud's life, and he would wonder, how, how did I see my rabbi deal with or relate to that difficult person? But a Talmud always considered what his rabbi would do if he was in his place. And that's really, in essence, what it means to be an apprentice. You admire your rabbi. You always want to emulate or, or you could say mimic him in his approach to life, to behavior. And, and we know how this works in life because we've experienced it. We've been part of it. We've seen it everywhere. And you think about it first in, in kind of the negative sense. People model other people's behavior. In the context of a family, sometimes that happens. So real recently, my friend told me the story that his seven-year-old kid said a swear word that kind of surprised him. And he asked his son, he said, so where'd you get that word? Why'd you say that word? And his son said, in essence, dad, I heard you say that word. So I thought I could say that word. Like, ooh, right? The pain of being a parent. You have to be perfect. Well, none of us are, but um, your kids will model things that you do or say or the ways that you act. But also the reverse is true when it comes to being an apprentice and adopting good behavior. So we've all probably seen a, a really polite, kind, well-mannered kid. 
And you, you almost always can trace that back to that's the values of the parents. It's what the parents have modeled or, or taught or, or, or those kind of things. That, that kid has kind of embodied that or, or resembles that, you could say. So when disciples were choosing to be apprentices of their rabbi, what they were choosing to do is adopt to become the kind of person he was, to adopt the teachings. Why? Because they saw something or someone worth following. Hence, they wanted to mimic it. It's called mimicry. Can anybody say that word, mimicry? It's kind of a weird word. Can you say it like four times real fast? Go ahead. Mimicry, 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 mimicry. Yeah, it's really hard, right? Somebody did it four times? You're the winner. I don't know who you are, but congratulations. I'm glad that you can do that because I cannot do that. But, but, but this idea of, of mimicking, okay, that is really what that apprentice or disciple wanted to do with the rabbi. So if we back up for a second and then dive even deeper into the first century and understand what's happening with a Talmud and a rabbi, there was the close relationship, but there was also this longer process that happened that's always been kind of fascinating to me. So in that culture, first century Jewish culture, what just about every young Jewish boy aspired to become was a rabbi. It was the highest honor in that culture. And by the age of 10, by the age of 10, most boys, it's understood by scholars, most boys would have memorized the first five books of Torah or the first five books of the Old Testament. I don't mean the names of the books. I mean every word from Genesis to Deuteronomy. Has anyone done that? Not me. I have a hard time remembering my own phone number sometimes or age. But th- this was embedded into their culture. It's like before they could walk, they were starting to memorize the Hebrew scriptures. And then somewhere between the ages of 10 and 14... These, these boys would seek to memorize the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures. That's like, the, that's like our Old Testament. Now, not everyone would achieve that, but that was what they were striving for. Some would kind of fall off, and they would go to pursue their career that you know, their family does, whether it was a farmer, carpenter, or whatever. So not every boy would, would land there, but many would. And then the process would evolve, and about the age of 14... There were Jewish boys who really excelled. They really started to stand out. And they demonstrated exceptional knowledge and intellect, and you could say talent. And they were on their way, hopefully, to achieving their goal of becoming a rabbi. Of course, the only path to get there was through another already existing rabbi. But here's the thing. Only the best of the best of those boys were chosen. It was the ones who excelled the most in their intelligence, in their gifting, in their talent, in their memory, and they had to perform well enough under pressure because these rabbis would give them different kinds of tests. They had to prove, in essence, that they had what it takes to become like their rabbi. So about the age of 14 or 15, a Jewish boy, when they were, you know, you could say ready or almost ready, they would approach a rabbi who they hoped and thought they could become like. They had typically been listening intently to this rabbi, following that rabbi around, usually would go on about six months. They had this hope and this longing that they would be noticed and selected by a rabbi that they were really drawn to. They they, they wanted to study under him. And then at some point, that disciple or potential disciple would ask this question to that rabbi. When he had a moment, he'd seize the moment, and he would say, may I follow you? Which is like asking 
the girl out that you've never talked to or something to go out on a date with you. You're like, I'm ready for no, right? It's like this moment. And, and, but in essence, what he was asking, he was saying, he was saying, do you have, do you think I have what it takes to become like you? So rabbis were typically pretty humble, and they, they might say something like, I'm honored that you would ask. I, I noticed that you're seeking God, and, and I would like to help you. And mind you, the rabbis in that culture, they wanted to make many disciples, right? I mean, that was, that was part of their motivation. They wanted their message to spread, but they were very particular. They were very specific. They were very, you could say, selective in who they, in who they chose. So they wanted to be sure those potential disciples could what was called take on their yoke. And their yoke, in essence, was their interpretation or their perspective on how to live out the truth of the scriptures. So stay with me. They, they wanted only disciples who they really believed not only could be li- become like them, but who could carry on their yoke. They, they, could, they could teach the message. They could live the message. They could spread the message. And if they did not feel like that Talmud or disciple could, they would not select him. So in essence, what they were looking for was like the Harvard, Yale boys, the, the valedictorians, the all-stars, the you know, super talents, if you want to say. And in most cases, after these rabbis ran these Talmud through different tests, they'd like quote a text from the Bible and they would expect the Talmud, this is one example, to answer uh, or they'd ask him a question about the text in the Bible. They, they'd, they'd expect him to answer the question with another question to prove that they knew the text well enough to, you know. So that, there was things like this, and they were essentially proving themselves to the rabbi. But for most, the rabbi would essentially say something to the effect of, hey, you're a godly man, you know the scriptures, but it's time for you to go home and take on the trade of your family, farmer, carpenter, whatever. Which, you know, it's like, that's a big rejection, in case you missed that, right? It's like, it's like saying, God has gifted you, but you don't have the abilities, you don't have what it takes to do what I want you to do. And imagine all the young boys that felt like a failure, that felt rejected, that, 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 that the idea that this created in their family, that they have this dream, and then the dream essentially is shattered. And then for the rare few that those rabbis thought had what it took, they would say this. They would say, come follow me. Come follow me. And in that moment for that disciple, it was an opportunity of a lifetime. So the boy would leave his family. He would leave his village. He would leave the synagogue he's, he's you know, studying in. He'd leave it all to go follow that rabbi. He, he was approved and affirmed. He had passed the test. He had performed well enough. He had what it takes. And so all of this is the backdrop of the culture that Jesus decides to step into when he walked the earth. He steps into this culture, but as he typically does, at one level he embraced the rabbinical system and and the Galilean discipleship model. He stepped into that, embraced some of that. But then as he often does, he then flips the whole system on its head. So it's time for him to choose his disciples. His ministry is about to begin And here's the thing about Jesus. He wasn't looking for the most gifted. He wasn't looking for the most intellectual or smartest. He wasn't looking for people who could prove that they had what it takes to be his disciple, to become like him, to do it how he did it. Nobody had to prove themselves to Jesus. Instead, 
Jesus decided he was going to choose 12. What the Bible calls ordinary, unschooled people. Ordinary, unschooled people like you and me. Why did he choose them? Because he believed in their potential to change. He believed that they could become like him in the power and the grace of God. As imperfect as they were, he believed that through God's power and God's grace that they could be used to bring change in human history. So Jesus selects these. And most scholars think they were, most of the disciples were were somewhere around the age of like a high school sophomore. It was Matthew, the tax collector, he was probably older. But, But these are young guys, and these disciples, these 12, they had almost certainly been passed up in that culture because of their age and where they were in life. They had almost certainly been passed up by other rabbis. But all of that didn't matter to Jesus. To everyone's surprise, he chose these 12 who looked unextraordinary to most but pre-great to Jesus. He comes along, his reputation precedes him, and he says first to Peter and Andrew, come follow me. And what does the text say? It says, immediately they went to follow him. And then James and John says, immediately they left their boat and their family. And I just kind of imagine, this, isn't, this part isn't in the Bible, but I imagine Zebedee, the father, right, going back to mom. It's like he went out with the boys and he comes back without them. They're, I don't know, 15 years old or so. Right? And mom's like, where are the boys? So I left them with this guy. <laughs> it's like, well, that's not going to go so good, you know. But in that culture, it was different. That was like the dream. That was the aspiration. That was the, that was the, the man, this happened. This is amazing. They were thrilled. The parents were like, oh, my goodness, my boys got selected by this rabbi, and it was Jesus of all people. I know that kind of sounds crazy to us, but this was a dream come true. This was a moment, this was a life-changing encounter that the Son of God had with these people that would turn their worlds upside down and later would turn the world upside down. And all this is the culture that Jesus stepped into, but it brings a question to the forefront, really for all of us who say, I want to follow you, Jesus. And the question is this, how do I actually become like Jesus? Because if you're anything like me and you're honest, that's a daunting thing to take on, that I want to become like Jesus. But that's what Jesus was inviting these disciples to do and to embody. So there's this, there's this phrase in the New Testament, and it's found in various places throughout the Bible. It's, it's kind of from the ancient Near East, and it captures really the heart and how-to of someone becoming like their rabbi, in our case, Jesus. It's a phrase to sit at someone's feet. So in one case, you have Mary, who was a woman who became a disciple, which, by the way, Jesus flipped that part of the culture upside down, too, where he actually had women disciples, not as part of the 12, but he had other disciples as he went throughout his ministry. There's like the three, the 12, the 70. But he, 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 changed. he was the first rabbi to select a woman to be a disciple. So, so Mary, it says, was sitting at, some, at the Lord's feet which indicated there's a significant relationship and connection between a rabbi and a disciple. But here's the thing. When we think sitting on his feet, we think, oh, we're sitting in a chair on the floor next to him in a chair or something like that, and perhaps that's one way. But really, Jesus wasn't talking about so much the physical location of Mary in the room. It's about Mary's declaration of a fundamental decision that she's made for her entire life. We can be sitting at Jesus' feet, of course, when we're in prayer, 
But we can be sitting at Jesus' feet with that kind of posture when we're making our child's lunch or when we're driving to work or when we're exercising at the gym or when we're watching Netflix or sending a text message or in other nooks and crannies of life. We can be sitting at the feet of Jesus, inviting him to be with us in the present moment, to be our teacher, to be our guide, to be our master. We can be listening to him and being led by the Spirit. Because it's in the ordinary activities of life that we can see God's presence if we would just open our spiritual eyes and pay attention. That we could see God at work in life. That we can remain attentive to his quiet whisper. And I know in in our day, okay, we read the Bible and these people around Jesus in the physical sense. I know in our day that's different. But the priorities remain the same. Because we were designed to follow Jesus. We were designed to be his disciples and apprentices who who would strive to become like him, to live in close relationship with him. We were created to live like this, to live and understand what would Jesus do if he was in our place. I want to do that. And I know, again, that sounds daunting, but, but here's the promise of the Bible You know, Jesus left the earth. He said, I'm going to be leaving, but I'm going to be sending the Holy Spirit. And the promise of the Bible is that you don't have to do that by human effort alone. In fact, that's quite impossible. Jesus says, no, I want close relationship. In John 15, he says, abide in the vine and the fruit of the Spirit will be born in your life. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, gentleness, goodness. I don't know about you, but I want more of those things in my life. But he says, you don't muster these things up. You don't try harder to get these things. It's like, what do you do? That's not your job. Your job is to abide in the vine, to stay connected in close relationship to me. And then the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit will begin to transform all of who you are. Your attitudes, your perspectives, your passions, your pursuits, begin to change because you're near to Jesus and connected to Jesus. So the pressure is off of us. What our responsibility is, is to stay connected to God. And and back in the first century, there, there was a blessing that expressed the full devotion of a disciple. It was said about them, those who 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 said or who lived out, they were consistently connected to the presence of the one they follow, Jesus. And and this was the saying, may you always be covered in the dust of your rabbi. That was the blessing that was said about them. May you always be covered in the dust of your rabbi. What, What did that mean? Well, of course, there wasn't paved roads like we have today, really. There was dusty roads, dirt roads, and they wore sandals. And they, of course, didn't wear socks like we do today sometimes. It's a fashion statement in our day, I guess. Does anybody wear socks with sandals? Don't admit that. Sorry. That's the conversation for another day. But anyway, they didn't wear socks with sandals, so they walked around. Their feet got dusty. So may you be covered in the dust of the rabbi. In essence, when a disciple would follow the rabbi, what would happen? They would get dusty because they'd be so close to that rabbi that the dust of their feet would fly up on their clothes, even get on their face, their legs, all that. So the dustier you were, the better. And if you were to live in the first century, legend has it that if the, if the rabbi was walking around town, you'd see these other disciples that were following him. And if he you know, bent down to smell a flower, what would those disciples do? They'd bend down to smell a flower. If he picked up a stick and chewed on it, they'd you know, pick up a stick and chew on it. That, that was the idea. Because why? They, they wanted to be just like him in every way possible. They wanted to mimic him and imitate him and emulate him. Because they admired him and wanted to be like him. 
They did anything and everything they could to do that. It didn't matter the activity. It was an opportunity before them to learn from the rabbi how to be just like the rabbi. So at one point a few years ago, I read uh, through the four Gospels at the beginning of the New Testament, and I kind of had one real lens on it. I asked the question, what were the disciples really doing throughout the Gospels? And the answer to that question might seem obvious, but it really hit me. They were with Jesus all the time. And, and it hit me as I read through that. And then I was asking, what were they doing? And whether Jesus was doing a miracle or feeding the 5,000 or teaching on something, they were, they were constantly, virtually every chapter, they were with Jesus. And for whatever reason, it, it struck me, in Jesus' three years of ministry, he spent it with them, in close proximity to them, in close relationship. Why? Because he knew if they were to become more like him, close relationship was essential. And what ended up happening in their life, in three years, they didn't quite arrive there, like we never we all never really ultimately do, but they started to reorder their priorities, their pursuits changed, their perspectives changed, their values changed, their decision-making changed. Yeah, and there were moments along the way they'd messed up, especially Peter, right? And he would get confronted by Jesus, like that happens to all of us or can happen to all of us. And yeah, these guys messed up, but what they were discovering was a new way to be human, the best way to be human. They were discovering how to live the life God designed them to live, what Jesus called life to the fullest that we all can step into. They were learning to sit at the Lord's feet in every day and in every way. They were getting dusty because they were around Jesus. And And though they messed up, Jesus wasn't surprised by that. He wasn't discouraged. He isn't with us either. He longs to live in close relationship with you and with me, and with all of humanity. And he opens up this invitation that we would come follow him, that we wouldn't just be people who believed or call ourselves Christians, but that we would be people that truly follow, that devote our lives, that reorder our priorities, that change our pursuits and perspectives, that allow him to transform all of who we are. And he says, I want the number one thing in your life, the number one priority, the number one thing that you need to care about is your personal relationship with Jesus. And if you will do that, if you will follow me in that way, and you will, you will strive to live according to my teachings and align your life according to my mission, you will learn to become like your master. This is what Jesus envisioned when he said, follow me. And the truth of the matter is this. So many times, I'm guilty too, we settle for less. And what I want to tell you today is that you were made for more than you can ever imagine. That God has something unique and special. That God has something planned for you today, tomorrow, and in weeks and months and years ahead. That God is just saying to you and to me, come follow me and I will transform your life. Come follow me and I will reorder things. Come follow me and I will make you into the person and help you to do those things that you were called and designed to do and be. I want to bring change to your life, and I want to use you to bring change to other people's lives. You were made for more. You were made for more than you can even imagine, I'm telling you, and Jesus believes that about ordinary people like you and like me, women and men and students and kids. 
young people and old people of all different backgrounds and all different failures that might have happened in your life, that Jesus says to you, come follow me. And when you stumble and you fall, the invitation still awaits you. He says, get back up and follow me because I got more for your life. And I, I know perhaps there could even be somebody here today and, and you've actually never followed Jesus. And I want to tell you today that you can say yes to Jesus right now. You can say, yes, Jesus, I've never chose to follow you. I was there one day in my life and I said, yes, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. No turning back. And there might be others in the room that maybe you've stumbled, maybe you've stalled out, maybe you've gotten derailed for one reason or another, but I want to tell you that the invitation is still in front of you. That Jesus is saying to you, follow me, and I will change you, I will form you, and I will use you. That you were made for more. And for all of us this, this day, there is a reminder that Jesus is saying, if you would follow me, if you would come after me, there's so much more in your life that awaits you. There's so much more that I have for you if you would just trust me every day. Will you pause with me as I pray for you this morning? Father, I just pray for each and every person today. Every person over there at South and at Grovetown, every person listening online, and every person in this room that I stand. God, I ask that your presence would be near to them. I know that you speak to us in all different ways and somehow you meet us right where we're at. So God, I pray that, that in the room today and to those who are listening, that they would hear your voice above all else. Maybe they need a challenge. Maybe they need an encouragement. Maybe they need a comfort or strength. God, I pray for them. I pray that they would believe once again that they were made for more, more than they could ever imagine, and they would step forward and say yes to you, Jesus. No turning back. I pray that for every person today, that you would teach us to walk in step with your spirit, that you would teach us to walk in your grace and your power, that we would hear your voice and walk forward. And when we stumble and when we fail, that we'd be reminded that, that we are loved and that you believe in us that you have a calling for every single one of our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And just, uh, just one thing before you go. Thanks for coming on this Labor Day weekend. So glad to have you. Um, I recently read this book, and it's really a great book. You should check it out. Uh, it's called Made for More. <laughs> they made me do this. Uh, but no, if you want to get a book, they have them in the back. I'm happy to sign one. I'll be back there and uh, grab a copy. But again, thanks, thanks for coming. I hope the message kind of grabs a hold of your heart and your day and your week and your month is different in the years ahead as well. So thanks for coming. See you. Thanks for listening. If you would like to help support the ministries of Stevens Creek Church, please go to stevenscreekchurch.com and click the Give button. See you next time.